My name is Vajos Kutrulis. I am a professor of international law at the law faculty of the Free University of Brussels. And the lecture today will be on the beginning and end of occupation. Occupation is a question of fact. This is what the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia said when it examined uh, the question whether a situation would be one of military occupation in the case uh, of uh, Naletilic and Martinovic. This is also a statement which is found in several military manuals. And despite its apparent simplicity, there are many, many complex issues and questions which are hidden behind this phrase. Now, naturally, we're discussing here a question of classification. And as is always the case, questions of classification um, entail important legal consequences. The, the, the thing with the classification of a situation as one of occupation means that um, once this classification is established, this will entail the application of a set of specific rules of the law of armed conflict, otherwise called international humanitarian law or IHL. Now this set of rules, to which legal scholarship usually refers as the law of occupation, is essentially composed of Articles 42 to 56 of the 1907 um, Hague Regulations and Articles 47 and following of the Fourth Geneva Convention relating to the protection of civilians in times of armed conflict um, adopted in 1949. Now, of course, these are not the only rules which are applicable in situations of occupation. One should not forget that other rules of international humanitarian law continue to apply in such situations. And also, aside from that, other rules of general public international law continue to apply. Most importantly, human rights uh, continue to apply in situations of occupation. But in this lecture, I will stay focused on IHL. And with respect to IHL, uh, while um, uh, this branch of international law asserts that occupation does not entail a transfer of sovereignty over the territory which is occupied, the law of occupation does recognize that the occupying power administers the territory, albeit temporarily, and to this end establishes a series of rights and obligations which are binding upon the occupying power. For example, the occupying power may interfere to some extent with local legislation and adopt new rules. The occupying power may act as a refractory with respect to natural resources of the occupied state. Or the occupying power has the duty to ensure public order and safety in the occupied territory. Thus, in order to correctly identify when and whether these rules apply, it is crucial to be able to determine whether we are before a situation of military occupation, also called belligerent occupation. This is the question which will be the object of the lecture, and this lecture will be divided in two parts. I will first deal with the beginning of occupation, and then on the second part I will deal with the end of occupation and the end of application of the law of occupation. Starting from the beginning, when does an occupation start? 
Now, the answer to that question is given by the definition of the notion of occupation, which we find in Article 42 of the 1907 Hague Regulations. This article reads as follows. Territory is considered occupied when it is actually placed under the authority of the hostile army. The occupation extends only to the territory where such authority has been established and can be exercised. Now, this definition points to three conditions for the existence of an occupation. Territory, a hostile army, meaning an enemy state, meaning an international armed conflict, and an authority, which is established and can be exercised. I'll go over these conditions one by one. First condition, the territory. Now, usually when we're discussing occupied territory, we're thinking about land territory. And naturally so. However, it is important to clarify that an occupying power who occupies a, a part of the territory of the state, of land territory of another state, also usually occupies the adjacent sea territory, maritime territory, and air to the occupied territory. A second element which should be underlined is that the size of the territory occupied doesn't matter. So irrespective of the fact of whether the territory over which a state exercises a control is small or big, the, the, the existence of the occupation may not be called into question. A third and last element with respect to territory is the fact that an occupation exists even despite uh, questions or ambiguities uh, relating to the status of the territory. So even contested territory may be occupied. And this is only normal since usually in situations of occupation, situations of occupation occur because a state claims sovereignty over the territory of another state. So there is usually an underlying uh, dispute over sovereignty with respect to occupied territory. Now, international case law, namely um, uh, an arbitral award by the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission, has uh, specifically uh, established that the contested status of a territory is not an obstacle to the establishment of occupation. The second element of the definition of the occupation is the existence of an international armed conflict. As I was referring, uh, as I was saying before, you need, in order to have an occupation, you need a hostile army. This is what Article 42 says. And who says hostile army? means the existence of an international armed conflict. Most importantly, a situation of occupation does not exist in non-international armed conflicts. And this is one of the crucial differences which still exist between IHL applicable in international armed conflicts and IHL applicable in non-international ones. So despite the gradual convergence between uh, the rules of international humanitarian law, which are applicable in both situations of armed conflict, the law of occupation still remains one basic difference, since it only applies to international armed conflicts. Further than that, uh, in order to determine whether we are before an international armed conflict, we must refer back to 
the classical definition of what an international armed conflict is and more specifically to common article 2 of the four Geneva Conventions adopted in 1949. And this article reads that the conventions apply to all cases of declared war or of any other armed conflict which may arise between two or more high contracting parties, even if that case of war is not recognized by one of them. I will not deal more specifically with the definition of an international armed conflict. This is the topic of, of, of a whole different uh, um, question. I will, however, dwell on international armed conflict one uh, uh, for uh, very briefly, just uh, to highlight the, a new addition that the 1949 Geneva Conventions brought to the notion of armed conflict with the second paragraph of Common Article 2. Now this paragraph specifies that a situation of armed conflict exists also in cases of occupation meeting with no armed resistance. Now this is not your everyday case of occupation, but it is still useful to clarify that even when a state invades another state, and the invaded state, for one reason or the other, does not oppose this invasion, and thus there is no open, active hostilities between the two states, well, even in these cases, you have a situation of military occupation and you have a situation of international armed conflict. So this is basically the new addition of Article 2, Paragraph 2 of the Geneva Conventions with respect to the definition of uh, Article 42 of the 1907 Hague Regulations. When we are discussing international armed conflict, this inevitably raises the question of consent. If there is consent on behalf of the territorial state with respect to the presence of foreign troops within its territory, then of course these troops do not constitute a hostile army. In other words, you do not have an international armed conflict and thus you cannot have a military occupation. This is why foreign military bases which are established in territories of several states pursuant to mutual defense agreements, for example, are not considered as occupied territories. Now one should be very careful when dealing with issues relating to consent, since it must be established that consent is validly given and is not vitiated. And also foreign troops must respect the limits of the consent given. And of course, there is always the risk that consent may be withdrawn, in which case foreign troops may be found to be occupying powers if they exercise the requisite level of control. This was made perfectly clear in the ICJ judgment uh, in the case of armed activities in the territory of the Congo, a case in which Ugandan troops, which were originally invited uh, in the territory of the Congo were found to be uh, occupying uh, troops, so in, uh, Uganda was found to be an occupying power once the consent on behalf of the Congolese government was withdrawn. Let me move now to the third and final element for establishing the existence of an occupation, the authority, which has been established and can be exercised. This element is a facet, reflects one of the basic principles um, when we're discussing, uh, which exists when we are discussing the classification uh, of conflicts, the principle of effectiveness. So the idea that for issues of classification, primacy is given to the facts on the ground. 
In other words, the application of IHL depends on these facts and as soon as an, a situation which must be regulated by IHL arises, then IHL, then IHL starts to apply. Now, this, uh, in this case, we're referring to the capacity of the occupying power basically to exercise effective control on the ground. <clears throat> and we have uh, some guidance which is given both by military manuals of several states and by the ICDY in the aforementioned judgment on the Naletilic and Martinovic case, um, which set down a list of elements uh, that may be helpful in determining whether we are before such an authority which is established and can be exercised. So what are these elements? Let me mention a few of them. The occupying power must be in a position to substitute its own authority for that of the occupied authorities. The enemy forces um, may have surrendered, may have been defeated or may have withdrawn. In this respect, one should note that battle areas are not considered as occupied territories. However, the existence of sporadic local resistance, even if this resistance is successful, doesn't put into question the existence of an occupation over an entire territory. The occupying power must have sufficient force present or must have the capacity to send relatively quickly uh, troops in the territory in order to make its authority felt. The occupying power may have issued directives to the civilian population, may have disarmed the civilian population, may have been uh, able to resist attacks by the enemy army or the civilian population, etc. Two important clarifications must be made in this respect. The first one relates to the duration of the occupation. Now, duration of the occupation does not matter for establishing the existence of an occupation. In other words, there is no minimum duration which is imposed in order to be able to classify a situation as a military occupation. Naturally, the more an army is present in an enemy territory, the more an army stays in an enemy territory, the easier it will be to prove that it has established its authority and that one or more of the indications are uh, present. But, uh, formally speaking, there is no minimum uh, days or weeks that this presence must have uh, crossed before we are able to talk about an occupation. And this has once again been clearly set out by uh, the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission in uh, a partial award handed down in 2004. And I'm citing the commission here. Where combat is not occurring in an area controlled, even for just a few days by armed forces of a hostile power, the commission believes that the legal rules applicable to occupied territory should apply. The second clarification relates to the intention of the occupying power, which is another element which doesn't matter for establishing the existence of an occupation. In other words, even benevolent occupants who are there not in and not with an intention to exploit the country or to um, actively be aggressive against the civilian population, but who are there under claims that they are liberating the population. Well, even in these cases, uh, the situation will be classified as one of occupation and these occupants will be subject to the full array of uh, rights and obligations which are set down in uh, the law of occupation.
Now let me uh, approach some specific cases, some special cases relating to the beginning of occupation. I will deal with three of them. Uh, the first one relates to the application, the possibility of applying the law of occupation during the invasion phase. Now, as I was explaining before, the law of occupation applies as soon as an occupation exists. So the question comes up, what about situations where an army hasn't yet est firmly established, established its authority over the foreign territory? There is no effective, real effective control. However, we are, for example, in a case where an invading army crosses uh, and stays overnight, crosses uh, into the territory of another state, stays overnight uh, next to a village and forces villagers to work for the army in question. For example, forces them to dig trenches. Now, normally, forced labor is uh, an activity which is prohibited by Article 51 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. The problem with Article 51 of the Fourth Geneva Convention is that it is found in a section entitled Occupied Territories. So if you interpret the notion of occupation strictly, Article 51 would not be applicable in these kind of situations. Two interpretations have been suggested in order to deal with this problem. The first one is that under the Fourth Geneva Convention, the notion of occupation is different, broader, to the one set down by Article 42 of the Hague Regulations. In other words, the Fourth Geneva Conventions has a general uh, threshold for its application. It applies every time and as soon as enemy civilians fall into the hands of uh, the enemy state. And then Technically, this covers also uh, the, the example that I gave before with the invading army crossing and stopping over a village, and thus covers also the invasion phase. The other possible interpretation is to consider that some of the obligations set down in the Fourth Geneva Convention apply also during the invasion phase. Either way, the result is the same. And the result is that civilians in these situations are also protected by uh, the rules of international humanitarian law. The second question that I wanted to, to deal with is the question of the personal scope of application of the law of occupation. In other words, who may occupy a foreign territory? Now, we usually, when we're thinking about occupation, we're thinking about occupations by states direct occupations by state. State A invades and occupies the territory of state B. There are, however, other, uh, other possible examples, other, other possibilities. And the first one, and one which is very important, is the question of the hypothesis of an indirect occupation or an occupation by proxy. In other words, the case where a state doesn't occupy a foreign territory through its own armed forces, but occupies a foreign territory through a rebel group which acts under this state's control. So the idea here is that it is the rebel group who is exercising the effective control and the authority necessary to establish the occupation, but there is a third state behind this group which is actively controlling the group.
the question which arises is what is the requisite level of control in order to speak about an occupation by proxy. If we stick to the general theories about the internationalization of non-international armed conflicts, then it is the level of control necessary will be the one of overall control as set down by case law um, of the ICDY. This is also the position which is followed in the recent commentary published by uh, the International Commission of the Red Cross in 2016. However, international case law seems to be somewhat stricter when it comes to occupation by proxy. If we look, for example, at um, the judgment, the ICJ judgment on uh, the Congo versus Uganda case, we see that in order to establish whether um, an occupation of the Congolese territory was possible uh, through the exercise of Uganda's, of Uganda's control over the rebels, the ICJ, the question that the ICJ was asking itself was whether Uganda was exercising effective control over the rebels and not overall control. The same uh, position, although at the beginning there were some ambiguities, was eventually followed also in some cases uh, before the ICDY. So it does seem that there is an incoherence here between the general level of control over rebels, which will be necessary in order to internationalize a non-international armed conflict, this level being one of overall control, and the level of control which will be necessary in order to speak about occupation by proxy, this level being effective control. Now again, uh, for reasons of coherence, it is entirely plausible to, to follow the interpretation put forth by the, the new ICRC commentary and to plead for the application of the same level of control to all situations uh, regarding the classification of conflicts, including, that is, situations of occupation by proxy. Now, the second actor, which may very well be an occupying power, is international organizations. Now, again, despite some uh, ambiguities in the past, mainly uh, in, in, in legal scholarship, there is no reason why the presence of the forces of an international organization within the territory of the state, without that state's consent, would not classify, qualify as a situation of occupation. One sees no, no reason why the threshold should be different when we are determining whether a situation exists with respect to states and whether we are determining whether a situation of occupation exists with respect to international organizations. <clears throat> the third question and final one uh, with respect to the beginning of, of um, occupation and the beginning of application of the law of occupation deals with the case or the question of whether the United Nations Security Council may change the classification of a situation. In other words, the, the real question here is, can the Security Council authoritatively determine whether states are occupying powers and whether they are not, and which states are occupying powers and which states they are not? Now, this may seem like a theoretical question. It may have seemed like a theoretical question 20 years ago, it is less so the case since we have a concrete precedent um, where uh, 
relevant arguments were put forth, and this precedent relates to the occupation of Iraq in 2003 by the coalition led uh, by the United States and the United Kingdom. Now, in this specific situation, the United States and the United Kingdom had sent, had sent a letter to the Security Council recognizing their status as occupying powers. The Security Council, on the 22nd of May 2003, adopted Resolution 1483, which recognized, naturally, that the US and the UK were occupying powers, and, interestingly, noted that, and I'm quoting here, other states that are not occupying powers are working now, or in the future may work, under the authority, which was the provisional administration established by the occupying powers. Now, this has led, for example, the government of the Netherlands to claim that its troops, which would be working in the future under the authority, would not be occupying powers since explicitly the United Nations Security Council resolution precluded them from being such powers. This thesis was rejected by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which confirmed that to its eyes the resolution of the United Nations Security Council was one indication among many with respect to the existence or not of an occupation and with respect to who is an occupying power. The ICRC um, affirmed that, as always, it looks at the facts on the ground in order to determine who is an occupying power and who is not, and that the examination of the facts of the ground on the ground in that particular situation led it to conclude that nine states were occupying powers. And it is confirmed that none of these nine states rejected this claim by the ICRC. Also, along the same lines, the US military manual, um, uh, the US Law of War manual, uh, published in 2015, also confirms that other coalition states, other than the US and the UK, that is, were also occupying powers in Iraq. So it does seem that the uh, precedent of the occupation in Iraq in 2003 um, does not confirm the idea that the United Nations Security Council may authoritatively uh, impose upon states a determination of who is an occupying power and who is not. This concludes the first part of the lecture dealing with the beginning of occupation and I'm now coming to the second part of the lecture um, in which I will uh, try to focus on the end of occupation. Now, globally, military occupation ends when one of the constitutive elements of the occupation disappears. In other words, and more concretely, we will either have a factual change in the situation, and this refers to the disappearance of the authority of control, or we will have a legal change in the situation, a change in the classification of the conflict. I will first examine these two hypotheses, and then I will go over to some specific cases. So when does an occupation end? First of all, it ends whether the authority which is necessary in order for an occupation to exist ceases to uh, be present. Now, again, I'm referring to what I was discussing later um, in terms of the indications and the interpretation of this element of authority. While sporadic acts of resistance, even successful, do not entail the end of occupation, 
active hostilities do, and zones of active combat cannot be considered as situations of occupation. In other words, a new outbreak in hostilities will bring about the loss of control on the part of the occupying power and thus the end of military occupation. The central element here is the disappearance of the criterion of effective control. This may also uh, come about in cases where the occupying uh, troops decide to withdraw from the territory uh, over which they were exercising their control. Now, one may think that such withdrawal um, undoubtedly brings about the end of occupation. It, things are much more nuanced than that, in the sense that the presence, the physical presence of foreign troops inside the territory, while it may be an indication for the existence of control or not over that territory, is not a conditio sine qua non for the existence of occupation. The Gaza Strip precedent is an interesting example in this regard, and I am naturally referring to the classification of the situation in Gaza after the Israeli disengagement in August 2005. Now, following this disengagement of Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip in 2005, the Israeli government and the Israeli Supreme Court have maintained that Gaza, the Gaza Strip was no longer occupied. The main argument here is that you cannot have an occupation if you do not have boots on the ground. <clears throat> As I was saying before, this seems to be reading too much to the definition of the occupation in the sense that the central element of this definition remains the question of control and even if naturally the existence of boots on the ground will be important for establishing such control, it may be the case that such control may very well exist despite the fact that there are no boots on the ground, that there are no soldiers inside an occupying territory. This will be a case-by-case, -case, this will need a case-by-case -case analysis and an examination of a whole situation in order to identify whether control continues to exist even after the disengagement of troops from uh, a territory. And, for example, in the case of the Gaza Strip, Several states have asserted that even after August 2005, even after the disengagement of Israeli troops from the Gaza Strip, the Strip has continued to uh, be an occupied territory due to the control exercised by Israel over the Strip um, by virtue of uh, control of the borders, control of the aerial um, uh, space, of uh, the Strip, control of the maritime territory, etc. So it was a series of other indications which were put forth by states in order to uh, assert that the Gaza Strip continued to be an occupied territory. The second hypothesis where an occupation may end is a change in the legal element of the occupation, so a change in the classification of the conflict. So, as I explained before, you need to have an international armed conflict in order to be able to talk about an occupation, which means that once the international armed conflict ceases to exist, ceases to exist, one of the basic premises for the definition of the occupation ceases to exist as well. Now, usually, if you look at, at 
uh, old manuals, um, the idea is that an international conflict is brought to an end through a formal peace treaty or a general armistice agreement. This is less the case in recent occupations. Recent occupations uh, point to another way of ending international armed conflict, and that is through the consent of a new government which is established in the occupied territory. Again, as I was saying before, when we are discussing this issue of consent, we should be very careful in, in the appreciation of the validity of this consent and in determining whether consent may be vitiated or not. If the consent is valid, then this will, this will change the classification of the conflict, there will be no international armed conflict, and thus there will be no occupation. But there have been cases of abuses in, uh, uh, in, with respect to this element of consent. And I am thinking of the idea of a state intervening in the territory of another state, establishing a puppet government, getting invited by the government that state has established, and then claiming that due to the invitation there is no international conflict and there is no belligerent occupation. One precedent in this respect is the uh, intervention of uh, the USSR troops in Afghanistan in 1949. So in that particular situation, USS troops invaded Afghanistan uh, in December 1979. They uh, established a new government. They were invited by this new government. And then every single time the ICRC tried to approach um, uh, the government of the USSR claiming that they were bound by the four Geneva Conventions and namely rules relating to the protection of detainees and the like. The reply of the government was that there, were, there was no international armed conflict in this specific situation, so there was no occupation, so the ICRC had to take its, its claims to the local Afghan government because all there was in Afghanistan was a non-international armed conflict at best. So what you have had during the whole uh, 1980s was uh, a very interesting uh, difference of opinion between Western states who were considering that the invitation by the Afghan government was not a valid one and thus there was an international conflict and an occupation and um, communist states which allied to uh, the argument put forth by the USSR and claimed that the consent was valid and thus uh, the international armed conflict was brought to an end, and thus there was no situation of occupation. So this goes to show you how important it is to be very careful when you're appreciating the validity of the consent on behalf of the government, of a new government, which is established in a state in a situation of an international armed conflict. A second precedent in this respect comes again from Afghanistan, only this time we are um, transferred 20 or so years later, in the intervention by the US-led coalition against the Taliban government of Afghanistan in 2001-2002. Now again, here what we have is a classic international armed conflict between Afghanistan on the one hand and the coalition on the other. We have the intervention of the coalition, the invasion of Afghan territory by the coalition, uh, the taking of Kabul, by coalition forces and the overthrow of the Taliban government. And two months after that, in December 2001, 
There is a new interim government which is put in place in Afghanistan by the intervening states. This government naturally invites foreign states, foreign troops to stay in the territory and to help the new government fight against the former government, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And following this invitation, some states of the coalition suggested that there was an end to the international conflict because there was the valid consent on behalf of the government on whose territory the troops are deployed. The ICRC didn't, doesn't follow this, inter this interpretation, this classification. It does not consider that the invitation given by the interim government on December 2001 is a valid one. Um, it considers as uh, a valid invitation the invitation which was given by the same government, basically, but once this government was confirmed, re-elected in a way, by a local council of uh, chief of tribes of Afghanistan, the Loya Jirga, um, and which confirmed uh, that this uh, interim government, the Hamid Karzai government, would be the interim government of Afghanistan in June 2002. So, for the ICRC, it is the new consent, the renewed consent, which was given in June 2002 by the interim government, which was a valid one, because at that time the consent, the government, had the approval of the local population, and thus was in a position to give a valid consent. And therefore, this is the consent which puts an end to the international conflict and thus potentially to any situation of occupation which may have existed in the territory of Afghanistan if the foreign troops had exercised the requisite level of control. The last example, again a very interesting one with a new spin this time, is the one relating to the occupation of Iraq in 2003 and 2004. So again, we're talking about the occupation of a state by a coalition of other states and the uh, establishment of, again, an interim government which is put in place by the occupying powers. Once more, this interim government invites the foreign troops to stay in Iraqi territory. So once again, we are before uh, a question relating to the validity of this invitation, the validity of this consent. The new element, the additional element in this case, is that in the precedent of Iraq, we have a resolution which is adopted under Chapter 7 by the United Nations Security Council. This is Resolution 1546. And this resolution welcomes that the occupation will end and that Iraq will reassert its full sovereignty at the end of June 2004. And most importantly, what the Security Council does in this resolution is that it welcomes the formation of the interim government of Iraq and is looking forward to the end of occupation and, I am quoting the resolution here, the assumption of full responsibility and authority by a fully sovereign and independent interim government of Iraq by 30 June 2004. Now, essentially, what this resolution does is that it recognizes the government, the interim government of Iraq, put in place by the occupying powers. It recognizes this government, then, 
as a government representing Iraq, and thus it validates the consent that this government gives to the presence of the foreign troops. Legally speaking, this has as a consequence that the foreign troops are no longer enemy army, that we're no longer able to talk about a hostile army, we're no longer able to talk about an international armed conflict, and by definition, we're no longer able to claim that there is a belligerent occupation in the territory of Iraq. This interpretation has also been confirmed by the ICRC, which has asserted that the occupation of Iraq uh, ended in the end of June 2004. Now, going over to the last part of, um, of the lecture, the special cases with respect to the end of occupation. The first question, which uh, will be dealt with here, uh, refers to um, the exact moment on which the law of occupation ceases to apply. Now, the basic premise here is that normally the law of occupation should stop applying when the occupation ends. Well, however, things are a bit more complicated, and this is due to one specific article that we find in the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. This is Article 6, Paragraph 3. This article establishes two different thresholds for the end of application of the law of occupation. And the article reads as follows. In the case of occupied territory, the application of the present convention shall cease one year after the general close of military operations. However, the occupying power shall be bound for the duration of the occupation to the extent that the power exercises still functions of government in the territory by specifically mentioned provisions. Now, as I was saying before, this article establishes two thresholds. The first one is the one year after the general close of military operations threshold. And this is the threshold for the application of the whole Geneva Convention. And then the second threshold is the end of occupation, but this concerns only specific provisions which are explicitly mentioned in Article 6, Paragraph 3. Now, this is a rather curious construction and if we look at the preparatory works of the Geneva Convention, we um, uh, find that it is actually a relic of um, the occupation of Germany and Japan by the Allied powers. The logic behind the adoption of the article was that in any case, one year after the general close of the military operations, the occupying power doesn't really have any interest in keeping, maintaining uh, the control over the occupied territory, and it will gradually give back to the local authorities the exercise of governmental functions. Thus, it should no longer be bound by the whole uh, range of obligations which are set down in the 1949 Fourth Geneva Convention. Now, as uh, practice has shown since the adoption of the Convention, this hasn't really been the case with recent situations of occupation. So the reasoning behind the adoption of the article doesn't really apply to occupations post-Second World War. And this is basically why this threshold of one year after the general close of military operations has been abolished 
by the first additional protocol and Article 3, Alinea B. And this article states that the application of all the Geneva Conventions and the first additional protocol ceases to apply at the end of the occupation. It is also important to note that no state, none of the states who participated in the negotiations objected to the rule. In other words, even the states who did not ratify the protocol afterwards, uh, they didn't ratify it, they, they, their, um, the absence of ratification was not a result of the opposition to this specific rule. So in other words, the rule is accepted even by states who aren't parties to the first additional protocol. Now, in reality, we would have probably have forgotten all about Article 6, Paragraph 3 of the Fourth Geneva Convention if the ICJ hadn't resurrected it in the 2004 Wall Advisory Opinion. In this opinion, the ICJ applies the article despite the fact that none of the intervening states had made any reference to the article uh, in uh, the written or oral procedures with respect to this advisory opinion. So for all this reason, it seems plausible that the correct threshold for applying uh, the law of occupation is the one which is set down in Article 3, Alinea B of the, set of the first additional protocol. In other words, the end of occupation. The second and final question uh, that I will deal today uh, refers to the possibility of applying the law of occupation during the withdrawal phase. This is a question that mirrors the one uh, we discussed earlier uh, with respect to the application of the law of occupation during the invasion phase. <clears throat> now here again, international practice indicates that the law of occupation does continue to apply also during the phase of, uh, of withdrawal of uh, an occupying power from the occupied territory. In other words, also during a phase where the occupying power doesn't really exercise fully effective control over the occupied territory. Now, I was referring to international case law, which um, confirms this interpretation. This case law is the judgment by the International Court of Justice in the Congo versus Uganda uh, case. Now, here, um, the date which was set down as uh, the date of uh, the end of the conflict was the final date, the date of the final withdrawal of Ugandan troops from the Congolese territory. And there is no indication that IHL or parts of IHL, in other words, in this case, the law of occupation, have ceased to apply before the date of the final withdrawal of Ugandan troops from foreign territory. In other words, implicitly, this ICJ judgment confirms that IHL in general and the law of occupation in particular will continue to be applicable until the final withdrawal of uh, former occupying troops from the occupied territory. Another interesting precedent in this regard is the withdrawal of Iraqi troops from uh, the territory of Kuwait in 1991. Now, this withdrawal ended in the 2nd of March 1991 and infamously during this withdrawal phase Iraqi forces burned uh, several oil pits in Kuwaiti territory while they were withdrawing. 
um, the United States uh, made a claim that this, these actions constituted a violation of Article 55 of the 1907 Hague Regulations. In other words, of an article which clearly belongs to the law of occupation and which clearly is applicable only in situations of occupation, confirming that the law of occupation is, continues to, to, to be applied also during the withdrawal phase. Naturally, when we're discussing the detention of, of uh, protected persons, uh, for example, in this case, detention of civilians, the rules of IHL will continue to apply until the final liberation of these persons. <clears throat> now, it is clear, I hope, from this lecture that the questions relating to the beginning and end of an occupation are indeed much more complex than the simple phrase occupation is a question of fact seems to, to suggest. This is not a complexity which is uh, particular or specific to situations of occupation. It is rather endemic to uh, the situations of classification and I would suggest also uh, with respect to interpretation of almost any rule of, of public international law. And there are, of course, many other questions which arise in this, in this respect and there are many other complex questions with respect to interpretation of various substantial rules of the law of occupation. But these questions will probably be the subject of uh, another lecture, and certainly not this one. Um, I would like to uh, seize this opportunity to thank uh, the staff of um, the uh, Codification Division and the UN Audiovisual Library for inviting me and for giving me the opportunity to uh, deliver this lecture.